In January of 2023, St. Philip's College in San Antonio fired biology professor Dr. Johnson Varkey for teaching that biological sex is determined by X and Y chromosomes. According to an MSN report, the firing was precipitated by an incident on November 28, 2022, when four students walked out of Dr. Varkey's class following his regular lecture on sex determination by X and Y chromosomes. Subsequent complaints alleged that Dr. Varkey had engaged in religious preaching, discriminatory comments about homosexuals and transgender individuals, among other alleged offenses. Critics claimed his teachings exceeded the boundaries of academic freedom and included personal opinions that were offensive to many in the classroom. When people identify today as non-binary, they mean that they identify somewhere along a mythical continuum between male and female. That's why exponents of such a non-binary thinking talk in terms of gender rather than sex. But in Ecclesiastes 10, there is a universal binary more general even than male and female. It's wisdom and foolishness. The wisdom-foolishness binary in Proverbs is the most basic contrast in all biblical wisdom literature. And as limited as wisdom has proven to be for the writer in Ecclesiastes... He himself admits in Ecclesiastes 10 that even though this world looks and feels and even is sometimes absurd, wisdom is still better than foolishness. There's still a difference between wisdom and foolishness, and wisdom is still superior to foolishness. Even though foolishness overcomes wisdom all too often in this world, that doesn't mean it's foolish to be wise or that it is wise to be foolish. As senseless as the world seems sometimes, foolishness and wisdom do not merge into one another. They do not become one another and they do not switch places with each other. In other words, the wisdom, foolish, binary still holds, and it holds in four ways that prove wisdom superior to foolishness. So follow along with me in your own Bibles as I read out loud for us. Ecclesiastes 10. Ecclesiastes 10. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. 
If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way into the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, for in your bedroom or in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. So the wisdom, foolishness, binary, still holds, even in the midst of the world's senselessness and absurdity, as we observe it in everyday life. And this wisdom, foolish, binary still holds in four ways. First, wisdom is still more desirable than foolishness. Wisdom is still more desirable than foolishness, as ointment is more desirable than a dead fly. Now, it is absurd that a little foolishness outweighs wisdom. That's true. Verse 1 illustrates the last verse of chapter 9. The wisdom of diplomacy in chapter 9 was better than war, even though one sinner destroys much good. And so also in chapter 10, verse 1, just the tiniest bit of foolishness is the fly in the ointment that ruins wisdom and its plans. Just a little pinch of folly is all it takes to ruin a whole batch, maybe a whole lifetime of wisdom. There is then a frustrating absurdity to the very relationship between wisdom and foolishness. It takes less foolishness to destroy more wisdom. But it takes more wisdom to overcome just a little bit of foolishness. That ratio seems ridiculous to us, but it's inescapable. You can do years of good work at a company, but the minute it comes out, you lied on your resume or embezzled some money one time or visited a prostitute. You're done. A one-night stand can ruin a 30-year marriage. You may have planted a faithful church and pastored it faithfully for 35 years, but if your successor is a fool, he'll ruin it a year later. Still, that does not make it foolish to be wise or wise to be foolish. You don't look at this ridiculous foolishness to wisdom ratio and say, well, I guess it's wiser to be foolish since a little foolishness outweighs wisdom. And I want to be on the winning side, so I guess it's wiser to be foolish. No. 
He's not encouraging you to play word games like that. Nor do you say, well, I guess there's not much difference between being wise and being foolish at all. No. A wise heart goes right and a foolish one goes left. Wisdom and foolishness are still opposite cardinal directions. Wisdom and foolishness are as different as north and south, east and west. But, notice, this is not just a contrast between wisdom and foolishness in the abstract. It's a contrast between two different kinds of human hearts. The wise heart is contrasted with the foolish heart. They incline you towards totally different ways of living and thinking. The wise heart attracts him magnetically in one direction, while the foolish heart pulls him magnetically in the opposite direction. These different ways are not morally indifferent either. It's not just, well, she likes right and he likes left and there's no right or wrong. It's just preference. No. Right and left do, in fact, have moral overtones here. It's like Jacob's name for Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. That's a compliment. Nobody named their kids son of my left hand, son of my right hand. Dominance, power, favor. It's like in Jonah 4, where God had compassion on the Ninevites because they didn't know their right hand from their left. Now think about that for a minute. The Ninevites weren't a bunch of morons. <laughs> Which one's my right hand? That, that's not what they were saying. Nineveh was not full of dumb people. That's not the point. The point is they didn't know how to distinguish between good and evil, between right and wrong, between wisdom and foolishness, between truth and error. They didn't know which way would lead them right and which way would lead them left. That's the point. And it's the same here. Again, where will Jesus place the sheep at the final judgment? On his right hand. The goats go on his left. That binary is consistent throughout Scripture, and it's revealing that Ecclesiastes, which is a book full of exceptions to wisdom, is itself no exception to this very binary between wisdom and foolishness. It still exists. Wisdom still always leads you right, not left. If you are wise, then your heart will incline you to feel, think, decide, and act in the direction of the right moral, ethical, truthful way. If you are a foolish person, then your heart will incline you to think, feel, decide, and act in the direction of the wrong, immoral, unethical, untruthful way. They're magnetic. So even here, the preacher, Kohelet, is not undermining wisdom. He is using wisdom because he is still operating in that most basic binary of wisdom versus foolishness. One leads you right, the other leads you left, as if by different gravitational attractions. All the preacher's observations about the absurdities and exceptions of life are true, and this binary still stands. 
In fact, the binary remains constant and obvious in verse 3. The fool is foolish even when he's not doing anything more consequential than walking on the road. Even when the fool finds the beaten path instead of hacking his own way through life, he's still walking the path foolishly. His foolishness is constant even when he stumbles onto the path by accident or for the wrong reasons. And because his heart is full of foolishness, that's what his mouth speaks. Now, it's not that he says word for word, Hey, I'm Paul and I'm a fool. He doesn't introduce himself like that. But that's because he doesn't have to. He articulates his foolishness to others by the foolishness of what he says, how he says it, who he says it to, why he says it, and even by his actions when he's not talking. His strong opinions about marginally important things, his dumb priorities, his wasteful hobbies, his destructive habits, his misguided loves, even sometimes just his tone of voice. Everything he says and the way he says everything announces to everyone he's a fool. Without him ever wising up himself to what his talk says to others about what kind of person he is. In that way, his foolish speech is like a fly in the ointment of what might have otherwise been a godly, edifying, encouraging, challenging conversation. When the fool comes into that conversation, that's over. And it's hard to get him to stop talking. But it just can't help it. In Derek Kidner's words, he is too full of himself to refrain from airing his views to everyone he meets. And you know the type. You might even have a person in mind right now. But if that's true, that only shows you the binary stands, doesn't it? You know a fool when you see him, when you hear him. You also know this binary by experience when the ruler gets mad at you. Verse 4, it's unclear whether leaving your place here means talking back to an angry ruler, like forgetting your place in the hierarchy, getting too big for your britches, or running away from him and so making yourself look guilty. You could leave your place that way too. Or maybe, more likely, by storming out on him, like we considered back in chapter 8, verse 3, be not hasty to go from his presence. Hey, don't storm out on a king in a huff because he's not ruling the way you think he should. Whatever it means to leave your place here, it's the opposite of keeping your cool. Wisdom replies to anger with calmness, not with ratcheting up of emotion. And not just with a calm attitude, but with a calming influence that tamps down the anger of the angry person. A soft answer turns away wrath, Proverbs 15.1. But here again, Kohelet is not undermining the wisdom of Proverbs. He's using it. He's affirming it. So even with all the absurdities and exceptions of life that Ecclesiastes mentions, wisdom is still good. Don't give up on wisdom. 
Foolishness is still bad. Drop it. Even though a little foolishness can ruin a lot of wisdom, it's still better to be wise than to be foolish. And even though there is a wisdom of the world that masquerades as understanding and insight, that is an earthly, unspiritual, and demonic kind of wisdom. Especially when it is undermining the biblical wisdom that the writer of Ecclesiastes is recommending. The binary stands. God wants and expects his people to be wise. He complained in Jeremiah 4.22, My people are foolish. They know me not. That's what it means to be foolish. They don't know God. They are stupid children. That's in the Bible. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good, they know not. So even there, even the irony of being wise in order to do evil, even that irony testifies to the ongoing binary of wisdom over against foolishness. There would be no irony in that statement if the binary didn't still stand. It's crazy that you're wise in doing wicked foolishness. That's crazy. And again, to be foolish is to not know God. Part of God's provision for His foolish people is to send them shepherds who will feed them on knowledge and understanding from God's Word, Jeremiah 3.15. But the ultimate provision is Jesus. God's ultimate provision of wisdom for us is in Jesus. Because in Him, in Him, are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2. And as we preach, as we feed you on knowledge and understanding, we preach Christ crucified for sinners, Christ the wisdom of God and the power of God. The gospel spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus everywhere. He is the ointment of wisdom He is that good stuff that you want to breathe in and smell. He is salve for the foolish soul. His own heart always inclined him to the right. He he was calm before his angry accusers. And though a little foolishness outweighed his wisdom for a moment on the cross, his wisdom conquered their foolishness for all eternity because he rose from the dead according to God's wisdom and His wise plan of salvation for sinners. He paid the price for all of our foolish sins. And if we turn from our own wisdom to trust in Christ's wisdom, then we can be reconciled to the God we offended by our sins. Friend, are you asking God for His wisdom? Or are you the fool that doesn't think you need to ask for it because your M.O., is to follow your own heart, and you think you're wise enough. You can and you should ask God for a wise heart. James says outright, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's a promise, James 1. 
God is the kind of God that loves to give wisdom when foolish people ask Him for it. He's a giving God. He wants you to be wise. He won't make fun of you or look down on you when you ask Him for wisdom. He knows you need wisdom. He knows He's the only one who can give it to you, and He wants to give it to you. So ask God for a wise and understanding heart. Second, wisdom is still more practical than foolishness. Wisdom is not just more desirable than foolishness. Wisdom is still more practical than foolishness in verses 5 through 11. Now, it is absurd that sometimes the fools make the rules. Verses 5 through 7, the error is that the ruler appoints the wrong, incompetent person to a government job. person whose only skill is greasing the skids for his own promotion. It's not what you know, it's who you know. Meanwhile, the truly gifted leaders, the people who should be in positions of power, are sitting in obscurity and ineffectiveness, not able to do anything with all the giftedness that God has given them. Because the ruler made a mistake and hired the incompetent person instead of the competent person. That's not the way it's supposed to be. But that's how it is. That's life in the big city. And it doesn't stop there. He's seen slaves riding on horses while princes have to hoof it. Now that might not sound too bad to us in a world that thinks redistribution of income is the answer to all of our social ills, but for Kohelet, that's a total overturning of society. When we feel like this, we might say things like, well, goodness, the inmates are running the asylum. And we can relate to this. Horses are foreign imports in the Middle East. They were extremely expensive to deliver to Jerusalem, to Israel, to buy, to maintain. So usually they were saved for public military purposes. If you were a private citizen riding a horse that would have been an opulent status symbol. Think limo, stretch hummer, Lambo. That was what riding a horse was like if you were a private citizen. Now for Kohelet, that's all fine and good if you earned it fair and square, but he's not so sure that the slave earned it fair and square. And even if he did, he questions whether it's fitting or appropriate for someone of such low birth and skill to have a status symbol like that. In fact, from the way he places these two evils together, it's as if he suspects that these slaves riding the horses on verse 7 are the same fools who got promoted way above their competency in verse 6 into government jobs. So he's asking, hey, roll down your window. Where'd you get that Lambo? How'd you get that job again? How in the world does a guy like that end up driving a Beamer? While the more competent guy he beat out for the job is riding the bus. It doesn't look right. The optics of that are just really bad. 
and confusing, disillusioning, troubling. And Derek Kidner again captures the cynicism of the scene. We can make our own guess at the intrigues, threats, flatteries, and bribes that pave the way for these incompetent people to rise to such positions of power and prosperity and influence. It's senseless. It's ridiculous. You look at that kind of stuff and you say, how, do, how in the world did that guy get elected? How in the world did that guy get that job? How in the world is that guy over me at work when I know more than him? That's life. Still, though, poetic justice exists and wisdom avoids falling prey to it. That's the point of verse 8. But it assumes some knowledge of other wisdom passages in Scripture about digging pits. Some scholars, some really good scholars, think digging a pit here is hunters digging those pits for their prey, their wild animals to fall into, and then covering them over for camouflage. And then thinking, hey man, i got to remember where I dug my pit so I don't fall into it myself. And that that sometimes happens. That's how some people take it. You can take it that way if you want. But that is never how Scripture uses this image. Never. And the scholars who think that it means that here don't produce any occurrences of this image meaning that. Digging a pit and falling into it is an actual proverb. It's Proverbs 26, 27. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. But that proverb is in the context of hateful deception of other people. The pit is dug so that someone else will fall into it, but it swallows the one who dug it instead. That's the point of the proverb in Proverbs 26. And that's not the only place where that image happens. Proverbs 28.10, whoever misleads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit. So to mislead the upright is to dig a pit for them, but the digger will fall into it as poetic justice. Ha ha! Joke's on you, pal! Psalm 7, 14 and 15. The wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, the law of retribution. And on his own skull his violence descends. Psalm 9.15, the nations have sunk into the pit they have made. In the net they hid, their own foot has been caught. Ha ha, joke's on you. Psalm 57.6, they dug a pit. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. That's how this image is always used in the Bible, always. Digging a pit and falling into it is never used elsewhere in the Bible to refer to a mere occupational hazard. This is not OSHA stuff. This is evil stuff. Now, the Hebrew word here for pit only occurs here in all the Old Testament, so there's no comps. But the Greek word that translates pit here is the same one that translates pit in all the verses I just cited. So the Greek translators of the Old Testament thought that this was the same kind of pit. This is a sinister pit. This is a sabotage pit dug for others to get the best of them. And when the Greek word is used elsewhere in the Greek Old Testament, it's used in Ezekiel as 
the pit of the grave. So I don't think Ecclesiastes 10.8 is an instance of Murphy's Law or job safety. Not verse 8. It's Haman being hung on the gallows he intended for Mordecai. It's Daniel's accusers getting thrown into the lion's den instead of Daniel. Ecclesiastes 10.8 affirms then the reality of retribution, even in a ridiculous world where incompetent people end up with authority and money. And sometimes in a world where those incompetent people end up with their jobs precisely because they dug a ditch for somebody else to fall into so that they would get rid of their competition and get the job. But no matter how upside down this world becomes, sabotaging others will still be self-destructive. So, wisdom will not set such traps for other people and will avoid suffering the fate that foolishness plans for others. No matter how upsetting it is to see incompetent people getting high-paying jobs by setting traps for others. Similarly, digging through a wall is probably an image of ancient breaking and entering. This world may be crazy. The crime is not going to pay. Not forever. You break and enter, you get shot by the homeowner. Or it may be a more public meaning than that, like breaking down an ancient stone fence placed by your ancestors as a boundary only to get bitten by a snake in doing so. Because snakes hid in the crevices of stone walls like that. In Amos 5.19, escaping a bear only to lean on a wall and being bitten by a snake, that's a sign of God's inescapable judgment. Yeah, you escaped the bear, and then you, you were running for a while, you stopped to catch your breath, you lean on the stone wall, and pop, you get bit by a snake. Ah, you cannot escape God's retribution. So verse 8 is not merely occupational, it's judicial. Even though this world is upside down in many ways, you will pay for something you shouldn't be doing anyway. Wisdom will avoid doing such things. In other words, the binary between wisdom and foolishness still stands even though fools sometimes get great government jobs by setting traps for their competition. But even when you're trying to make an honest living, mining rocks or cutting logs, you can just as easily get hurt there, even though you're doing nothing wrong, like the people in verse 8. Verse 8 shows you things you should not be doing anyway, that wisdom tells you you shouldn't be doing anyway, then verses 9 and 10 shows you things you have to do anyway. Wisdom tells you not to do the things in verse 8. Wisdom tells you how to do the things in verses 9 and 10. So by all means, don't sabotage people just to get a high-paying government job, even though it's worked for other people. But even if you make an honest man out of yourself, you still run the risk of accident. So what do you do? You apply wisdom to work safe and smart, not just hard. You take precautions at the quarry. You take care when you're splitting logs. You sharpen the axe so you don't have to swing so hard and risk breaking it or your own arm. Wisdom cannot take all the risks out of life. Even so, wisdom does take precautions. It prepares. It helps you succeed. Wisdom can help you avoid the brokenness and risks of life. Wisdom helps you know what you're doing before you start doing it. And yet still, not all the wisdom in the world can make it so that you skate through life completely unscathed. In the end, even the whisperers 
Even the snake charmers can't always get it right just in time, nor can they undo damage after it's already been done. That's verse 11. The flow of Proverbs in verses 8 through 11 helps us make sense of the whole paragraph. Verse 8, wisdom tells you not to do what you shouldn't be doing anyway. Don't be devious. Don't be a criminal. Don't dig pits for other people. Verses 9 and 10, wisdom tells you how to do what you should do. Take precautions. Make preparations. Be practical. Take care of your instruments. Verse 11, wisdom tells you that even wisdom cannot do anything about some things. Sometimes the serpent bites before it's charmed. And if that happens, then even the charmer himself can't do anything about that. There are some instances where wisdom has to be given and taken before the fact. Because if you don't take it before, there's nothing you can do about it after. In other words, sometimes the opportunity to be wise may have already passed. And that makes you think, I better be on the lookout for the opportunities to be wise that I still have so they don't pass me by. So wisdom can work. Wisdom often does work. Wisdom is practical for life. Wisdom is far more practical than foolishness. It can keep you out of trouble in verse 8. It can keep you out of the hospital in verses 9 and 10. But sometimes wisdom does not work like when the serpent cannot be charmed before it bites. And in that case, wisdom has missed its opportunity. And even the modern charmers cannot do anything to fix it. And who are they? Well, people we view as charmers today are people like psychologists or therapists or counselors or pharmacists, or doctors, lawyers, professors, academics, social justice warriors, and yes, in some small, obscure circles, even pastors. Other people look to these people as experts, problem solvers, Charm the snake. Fix it, will you? Make sure he doesn't bite me. And if he does, make sure I'm okay. Modern wise men, charmers of all different kinds of snakes in life. Yet even they are sometimes stumped by difficulties even in their own area of expertise. And if that happens to you, Ecclesiastes told you it might. It doesn't ruin the biblical worldview. The Bible told you beforehand, this is how a fallen world is sometimes. You can't let it make you want to give up.
So here again, wisdom is still good. It's different than foolishness. It's better than foolishness because it's more practical than foolishness. The binary between wisdom and foolishness is still intact. Wisdom still helps you avoid a lot of bad things in life. It helps you to avoid unethical practices, accidental injuries, and it can help you even succeed. But as practical as wisdom still is, there are things in life that even wisdom cannot fix. And sometimes, even being as, you, as wise as you can be, taking all the precautions, doing all the right things in all the right ways, you don't succeed. Tragedy strikes. Precautions fail. The serpent bites. And parents, you know this all too well. Or you will. You can do all the right things for your children. You can train them up in the way that they should go. And yet, because Proverbs are not promises, they might not go the way you trained them in. You took all the precautions. You taught them all the catechisms. You did all the right things in all the right ways. You disciplined them. Does that mean wisdom is worthless? Does that mean you give up? Does that mean the Bible's not true? Was God unfaithful to you? Do you give up on Christianity because that happened? Do you give up on the Bible? Not at all. Professionals, tradesmen, you know this too. Accidents happen even when it's nobody's fault. But what do we do with those experiences? We don't throw wisdom out the window. We keep seeking it. We keep applying it precisely because wisdom is more practical than foolishness. Even though the serpent will sometimes bite before it can be charmed. Even though foolishness sometimes undermines wisdom, wisdom is still more practical. And you can't give up on it. Third, wisdom is still more respectable than foolishness. Verses 12 to 15. Wise words can and often do still win favor with people. As Kohelet continues gathering, sharing his observations on life, he notices that the words of a wise man still do generally win favor from others, while fools open their mouths only to eat themselves alive, socially, spiritually, professionally. Those are the results, different as they are, of wise and foolish talk. All you've got to do is look at how people respond to wise and foolish people when they talk, or look at how you respond to wise and foolish people when they talk. You know a fool when you're listening to him. You see him coming, you avoid him like a plague. You respect the wise, you're embarrassed for the foolish, but the foolish are often so full of themselves, they have no idea how they come off. And the more a fool speaks, the worse he sounds. He starts with foolishness, but by the time he's done, he's progressed all the way to immoral and even irrational talk. Foolishness leading to immorality and irrationality, and even then it appears the fool just keep talking often about what he thinks is going to happen in the future, even though nobody can know that. fool thinks he's wise enough to tell everybody what he thinks, even though he himself can have no idea. And when he works in verse 15, it's exhausting. When he does his job, it's exhausting to him. It's exhausting to watch him work because he doesn't know which end is up. He doesn't even have the sense to get in out of the rain. That's the idea of he doesn't even know the way to the city, the kind of person that Kohelet is talking about is clueless about common knowledge and hopelessly ineffective at work. To not know the way to the city, 
That might be literal. Like local knowledge. Like to, to literally not know the way to the city. Like, okay, either you're new in town, or if you lived here for 20 years and you don't know where the city, then I don't know what to tell you to do. But it's probably more like a figure of speech for not knowing how to live and work and be effective. This is probably like an idiom that we don't understand because we're modern and they're ancient. So it might be more like saying, he doesn't know how to pass go and collect $200. Now, if you've never played Monopoly, you don't know what that means either. Most of us have played Monopoly or suffered through it. This guy can never cross the finish line. He doesn't know how to round third and make it a home plate. It's not just that the fool is directionally challenged. The fool is contemptibly, culpably horrible at living his own life. And when you put it like that, we all know the difference between a wise and foolish person. Now, we're afraid to say that out loud because it's not popular to recognize fools for what they are today. We're almost afraid to recognize it even privately because we're afraid to think of people as foolish. But if we're honest with ourselves and with what we see in others, it's crystal clear. Now, it's true. You shouldn't go around calling other people fools. Jesus says as much. You should be gracious. You should use the judgment of charity. You shouldn't gossip. You shouldn't slander people. But... Jesus also says, judge with a righteous judgment. You still have to judge. You still have to make judgments about people and their character. Whether you're going to trust them or not. Whether you're going to listen to them or not. And usually it's pretty clear. In other words, the binary holds. You can tell the difference between a foolish person and a wise person. Now, does the race always go to the swift? Or the battle to the strong? Chapter 9, no, not always, it doesn't. But just because a little foolishness outweighs wisdom doesn't mean that there's no longer a difference between a wise and a foolish person or how they talk. Just listen to them. Just listen to them. In an extreme and disturbing example of foolishness leading to wicked madness, The 2021 San Francisco's Gay Men's Chorus wrote and performed a song aimed at Christians. You think we're sinful, you fight against our rights, you say we all lead lives you can't respect, but you're just frightened. You think that we'll corrupt your kids if our agenda goes unchecked? Funny, just this once, you're correct. We'll convert your children. Happens bit by bit, quietly and subtly, you'll barely notice it. You can keep them from disco, warn them about San Francisco. We don't care. We'll convert your children. We'll make them tolerant and fair. The gay agenda is coming home. The gay agenda is here. Go and see San Francisco. Go and turn up that disco. You'll forget you were ever upset. We'll convert your children and make an ally of you yet. Sadly, of course, we're all seeing what's becoming of San Francisco and we do not desire to visit the beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness. And the end of his talk is evil madness. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The binary stands. When Jesus preached his first synagogue sermon on Isaiah 61 in Luke 4, by contrast, the congregation's reaction was electric in Luke 4.22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were falling from his mouth. They responded to him, and at least initially, as the wisest man who ever lived. But what was it that Jesus was saying from Isaiah 61 that was so wise? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's wisdom. Jesus preached himself as the fulfillment of all God's Old Testament gospel promises. Jesus would end his people's captivity under sin's power and penalty. He would be the one to have the Spirit in unlimited measure. Jesus, his righteousness credited to us, would become riches for those who are morally bankrupt. He would be the one to free us from our slavery to sin. He would restore our spiritual sight so that we could view God, the world, self, and sin rightly. He would proclaim this age as the day of eternal salvation for all who will turn from their sin and from their wisdom to trust in Jesus and his gospel as the wisdom of God. Friend, Jesus himself crucified for our sins, buried, risen from the dead for our right standing with God is the wisdom and power of God for salvation from the power and penalty of your sins. That is wisdom. Every other form of self-salvation is foolishness. And in that way too, The binary holds. Fourth and finally, wisdom is still a common good, whereas foolishness is not. Wisdom is still a common good, whereas foolishness is not. Verses 16 and 17, contrast between a totally immature ruler who goes for instant gratification in a party atmosphere and a noble king, on the other hand, who waits for the better gratification of true accomplishment on behalf of his people. The immature king does the wrong thing at the wrong time for selfish reasons. He just eats to eat. The noble king does the right thing at the right time for the right and self-sacrificing reasons. He eats for the strength to serve and protect those he rules. Yet again, the difference could not be clearer, even in an upside-down world. Same sloth that makes foolish princes feast in the morning in verse 17 is the sloth that lets buildings fall into disrepair in verse 18. Delayed maintenance. Why do today what we can put off till tomorrow, right? Because laziness corrodes leadership. That's why. In verse 19, it's the abuse of the true proverb about bread and wine that leads to sloth and woe in verses 16 and 18. You abuse that proverb, and that's what you get, bad leadership. That's what they're singing foolishly at their party. 
So whatever you're calling in life, whether you're a CEO, a homemaker, or a child still living with your parents, your self-discipline, or your lack of it is affecting everybody around you and under you. Wisdom is self-disciplined. And that aspect of wisdom is a common good. Everybody recognizes it as a good. It's a good for society, whether you believe the Bible or not. Self-discipline is good in government and in national life. It's good for those around you and under you in the private business sector, and it's good for the domestic sphere at home. No one admires lazy bureaucrats, lazy business leaders, lazy husbands, lazy homeowners, lazy wives, or lazy children. No one respects them. And no one likes living under lazy leaders. Laziness is a pain for those who have to live with it or under it. So friend, take stock of your own character. Are you diligent or are you lazy? And how is that affecting others around you and those under your own care? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. And he said, I'm still working because my Father is still working. We have to work the works of him who sent me while it is still day because night is coming when no man can work. Now, of course, you can always object with verse 19. But bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Come on, man. In other words, oh, don't be such a curmudgeon, preacher. Don't be such a stick in the mud. Self-discipline. Come on, man. Haven't you read Ecclesiastes? Preacher, enjoy life, just like you've been telling us. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Didn't you just tell us that in chapter 9? And Kohelet says, yeah, I did say that. I said that. But don't be feasting when you should be working or fighting. Don't act like feasting is all you have to do all day. Otherwise, everything you're responsible for will fall into disrepair. That's true of the soul and of the churches as well. Charles Bridges said it this way, Never expect spiritual wealth while indulging carnal sloth. You frustrated about your spiritual life? When was the last time you read your Bible and prayed? You having trouble putting a week together, two weeks together, three weeks together? Well, I don't know what you're complaining about, man. You're expecting spiritual wealth out of carnal sloth. That doesn't happen. You can't come here and just expect to learn it through osmosis. I'm just going to come here and let it wash over me and I'm just going to expect something to happen good even though I'm not totally unprepared to hear this sermon. I haven't read the passage beforehand and I'm not going to read it again this week. 
the means of grace are what you make of them. It is an awakening thought, Charles Bridges goes on to say, that the living principle of Christian diligence may be paralyzed even in the midst of much outward exercise. That external energy and inward sloth may be found in the same person at one and the same time. You can come to church Sunday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You can take meals to everybody in the church who gets sick and not be a whit more mature spiritually than you were when you started because you're not praying. It's not sinking down into your heart. You're not doing anything with it. Oh, he says, whatever insensibility or feebleness may belong to prayer, let it never be given up. Still pray on. Pray on. Diligence. But again, verses 18 and 19 are related back also to verses 16 and 17. The sloth of the immature leaders who feast in the morning is going to bring down their political dynasty. That house is going to fall in disrepair. Kind of like God told to David, you want to build me a house, a temple? I'm going to build you a house, dynasty, kings, on the throne forever. That house is what's coming down in Ecclesiastes 10. The house of the rulers who feast in the morning and think they got nothing better to do than plan a party. In all these ways, wisdom is still better than foolishness. The diligence of wisdom is still a commonly recognized common good. No matter how inexplicable life gets, you still know that verses 16 to 18 are true. It's better to have self-disciplined leaders than selfish and lazy leaders in government, at work, and at home. And sooner or later, lethargic leadership weighs down both the leaders and the led. So when he quotes the well-known proverb in verse 19, he's criticizing the political leaders for the way they misuse this proverb to excuse their sloth and partying. Verse 19 is still true in and of itself, but in context, verse 19 is a critique of those who abuse it in order to excuse their own irresponsibility. All this laziness is being indulged in verses 16 and 18, and they're using verse 19 as if it were a doxology to indolence. Praise laziness! Bread is made for laughter. Life verse. So verse 19, then, is a prime example of a proverb that could be read literally if it's taken out of context. But in context, it is biting satire. It's irony. It'd be good if English translations would put it in quotation marks or the literal NAS would add the words, yeah, right, in italics, like they sometimes do, to indicate that in context this is meant as irony and satire, not a life verse or a beer bong song. Wisdom, then, does not simply let you sing verse 19 anytime you feel like cutting loose. Woo! Ecclesiastes 10, 19. Can't wait. No. We all realize this instinctively. You cannot use verse 19 or any of the other encouragements to eat your food with joy as an excuse for hedonism as a lifestyle. Hedonism is still foolishness. Self-discipline is still an expression of wisdom. And the obviousness of that very fact to your own heart is the evidence that wisdom is still a common good. And foolishness is not a common good. In other words, the binary still 
holds. And of course, any times we think of a wise or foolish king, we have to think of the ultimate wise king, King Jesus, who came, yes, eating his way through the Gospels, as we heard in the adult education hour this morning. But who was he feasting with? Sinners. Why was he feasting with them? To see them converted, to do the work of the God who sent him. He came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many and the ultimate denial of self. Even so, when you see bad leaders like the ones in verse 16 doing the wrong things at the wrong times for the wrong reasons, you better be careful how you think, how you feel, how you talk. In verse 20, wisdom does not vent all its deepest frustrations with corrupt leadership, even to a bosom buddy. The secret thoughts and feelings of your heart form the machinery of the assembly line where your words and actions are manufactured. So if you are cursing the king in your heart or in your private conversations, don't be surprised if it comes out later to your own hurt like Plato out of the crank. Those thoughts are coming right through. Even your private words can become public far more easily than you assumed. It is simple but sage advice for all of us. Be careful, little mind, what you think. We are told by the champions of modern self that the only way to be authentic is to say everything we feel every time we feel it. We are told that the only thing to do with authority is question and criticize it. We are told that the self would be far better off if only society did not make self conform to its compromising norms. Now that may be expressive individualism, but it is sure not wisdom. Wisdom often instructs you Discipline your thoughts. Bite your tongue. Suppress your opinions. Stop thinking you ought to say everything you think. Even when you do have a point, even when you're right about the leader that you're criticizing, because the proverb is still true that it is the fool who gives full vent to his anger, not the wise. Amid all the absurdity and senselessness of human experience in this world, wisdom is still more desirable than foolishness, more practical than foolishness, more respectable than foolishness, and better for society than foolishness. All of which is evidence that this ultimate binary still holds. Wisdom is still wisdom. Foolishness is still just that. And you know it, don't you? Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are still far more foolish than we even realize. We need 
that most righteous of all kings, King Jesus, to govern our hearts and mouths and to show us afresh the difference between wisdom and foolishness. Oh, Lord Christ, would you give each of us wise hearts to submit to your wise and righteous rule over us even when our flesh disagrees with you May we hold our tongues. May we find that there is blessing in obedience to you. There's wisdom in listening to your word and following it. And that it is good for us. For your sake we pray. Amen.